Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension here in Macomb, Illinois. And it is a absolutely lovely day right now. Um, it's just, it's almost difficult to be here inside uh, doing the podcast recording right now because for August, it might feel a little bit like fall right now. Uh, it's, it was a cool morning. We opened up the windows. Beautiful, beautiful day. But the questions keep coming in, folks. And so we have a hostful show for you today. We have our host coming in at you to answer your questions that you've been submitting to us, either through the Good Growing, social media, or the Extension offices. And of course, we have our first host, local foods and small farms educator, Katie Parker in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it being back in the office? I I would say my first day, my first uh, two hours being back in the office after almost almost six months of not, um, it's definitely... It's it's like I've almost started a new job. <laughs> it's like you oh, do that every six months. It'll be refreshing. I think so. I think this is uh, it's it's kind of refreshing. It's you're starting a new, a kind of a clean slate. Even though we're still doing the the same thing we normally are doing, I just have different surroundings, and I can't find a pen that works right now. So, you know, good times, good times. But that's kind of also the same struggle at home because my kids tended to uh, take my pens and paper all the time. Well, of course, we have also our other co-host here. We have horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. Well, Ken, how is life still at the home office? It's 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 all right. It's going good. I get a... Uh, earlier, I was being brought uh, and fruit, so I am now full and, and ready to go. That sounds like wonderful coworkers. <laughs> For the most part. So wait, they're bringing you <laughs> breakfast and lunch and food? Yes, yes, Play-Doh. Oh, I can't. I'm, I mean, that sounds when, wonderful. When it, when it comes to the real stuff, that's... That's where I have to come in and, and get it. But. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> they, they got me covered for the play stuff. Perfect. Well, and also, I guess I'm wondering, uh, Ken, Katie, are, are any of your offices opening up about this time right now? We're closed until September 14th. Yes, as of, yeah, as of right now, we're we're in the same boat, closed to the public until mid-September. I know some people are starting to, to return to the office, but yeah, no, no, outs, no non-extension people till mid-September. That's a weird, wild, and wacky world we live in, folks. So one of the things that still keeps on happening, though, is we are still out there doing programming, um, you know, trying to get out our research-based information to the public. And we've been doing webinars, the Good Growing Team, Ken, Katie, myself, also uh, Andrew Holsinger. We've been uh, putting on our, our webinar series, and we're kind of right in the middle of it. Uh, by the time you hear this, Ken will have already completed his webinar, which, you know, in our time, our, our present time is tomorrow, but um, once this podcast is posted, this will be in the past. So, I mean, how do you guys think these webinars have been going? I've, I have, I thoroughly enjoyed mine about landscaping, fact or fiction. Um, so, Chris, your, your webinar was definitely a good one. Uh, I think a lot of people enjoyed the interactions with the questions that you asked throughout your webinar. And Andrews was really interesting too. Um, 
because not a lot of people cover the fruit tree topics. Um, I'm interested to watch and listen to Kins this week uh, as I'm noticing spider webs all over our deck and um, throughout our yard. So it'll be good to learn about what kind of spiders those are. And and next week also, Katie, on the, the August 26th, you're going to be talking compost. And I know that's also been a highly requested topic. Even when I got into soil amendments uh, for my section, people are like, well, when are you going to talk about composting? So, yeah, I know folks are looking forward to your session next week coming up on uh, it, the end of August here on the 26th on composting. Yeah, definitely. I think if if we garden, you know, um, we have scraps left over from the the food that we produce from our garden, and so it's it's kind of a a full circle. So we can produce the vegetables, and then we can use the scraps to uh, compost, and then we can apply that compost to our garden for f- fertility in the future. Right now, my compost pile is in the back of a garden wagon. Uh, basically, I pull my weeds and I, I toss them in the wagon, and then I, uh, I'll, I'll probably kind of shred them up with a with a mower or a little lawnmower with a bag attachment, and then I'll throw it in our quasi compost pile, more of just a, a yard waste pile, uh, which is over time. I hope to produce more compost. Yeah, I mean that works. You've got your your own compost pile that works for you. And Ken, so have you had uh, a lot of takers for your spiders topic that's going to be coming up this week? Yes, actually, I've been, been pleasantly surprised with the number of people. I think we've got over 100 people signed up. So this is one. This is a topic that somebody has suggested from our previous um, go around of the webinars. So we do actually read those evaluations and, and take your suggestions into consideration. So that's how we that's how we ended up with the spiders. I'm looking forward to it. I've I've learned quite a bit putting it together. Some stuff I didn't know, or or some misconceptions I had that about spiders that hopefully we can start getting everybody on the same page there. I am one of the spider saviors. If I find a spider in my house, it gets caught with a, a tissue and thrown outside. But not every spider is so lucky. I think. Yes. You know, and folks, also I know. Um, you have kind of been along the ride with us here as, as Ken and Katie. We've been sharing our, our tales of what's happening out in the garden. And, you know, one of the things that kind of has us on the edge of our seat is Ken's peanuts and his cotton. So, so Ken, do you have peanuts and cotton yet? We're getting close to end of the growing season here. Yes, yeah, so I, we went out, the kids and I went out last week. Um, and looked at some of our <clears throat> peanuts, um, dug up a couple, and we have a few baby peanuts growing. So we'll see how many we actually get. Uh, and then the cotton has been blooming for probably close to a month now. We've got some pretty good-sized um, bowls on there. They haven't opened up or anything yet. But hopefully we'll get at least a few cotton um, bowls off there that we can pick and do something with probably sit on the table for a while and collect dust but we should we should hopefully get some cotton off our plants we'll see though sounds like you know i've used cotton balls as fire starter for like a bonfire or even the grill i wonder if you could you know make little cotton balls and and i don't know fire starter trying to come up with stuff for you here but there we go that could be a possibility yeah they're great for fall decor too that is true i know my my mom had some 
was the last year, two years ago, she had bought, and we all thought it was fake, but it was, it was real cotton. So if nothing else, maybe we'll have some some branches we can cut off and decorate the house with. Uh, experiment with natural dyes. That would be another option. Fun for the kids, I bet. It would. Well, Katie, what's going on in your garden these days? I know I got tomatoes coming out of my ears, so what what's going on at, at Katie Parker's garden? We still have cucumbers and um, tomatoes, tomatoes galore, but they're all green still. Um, I haven't been noticing some army worms on our tomatoes, so I've been picking those off and smashing them as I find them. Um, and then we're waiting on our cantaloupes to mature. But other than that, some things are dying down. Um, we do have some jalapeno peppers. My boyfriend been, has been anxiously awaiting the ripening of those. Uh, so still a lot of produce, but um, things are starting to wind down a little bit. Yeah, the, the warm, hot season seems to be winding down. We always tend to get another, I think, jolt of summer heat in September, but then it really cools down for our for ourselves. And we actually have a couple flats of cool season uh, lettuces and uh, beets and things like that on our deck that are going to be going into the ground, hopefully in the coming coming week or two. I'll also I'll also add that our cucumbers at at home have so many male flowers. There is not a single female flower to be found, and it's been like that all summer long. But the ones that are growing out in the, our local community garden, you know, I'm I'm picking cucumbers every time we come visit. And so I, I do know some folks have been struggling also with uh, not getting cucumbers uh, on their on their plants themselves. I'll say for the one that's growing at our house, it, it is more than likely due because uh, it gets good morning sun, but it pretty much gets no afternoon sun. So I'm guessing it's a lighting issue uh, that the plant just there's just not enough light for it to initiate probably a female flower. So we have, you know, good, healthy vine, but not good production on that one and i've noticed of our zucchini we have at our house we have not had very many female flowers lately um on ours i'm wondering if that's maybe kind of some temperature or if they are if they are there they're not <clears throat> they're that fruit is aborting relatively quickly something in maybe heat and a little bit of dryness too in our case and we've got our fair share of squash bugs out there too so well folks we have gotten Quite a few uh, questions that have come into the extension office. These insects known as murder hornets have been in the, the news quite a bit lately. And, you know, a lot of times folks get them confused with cicada killers. Uh, this is a, one of our native larger hornets out there in the landscape. You know, some folks, they want to know, um, you know, can they just leave cicada killers alone? What can they do? So, uh, again, extension offices across the state, we've kind of been getting these questions kind of popularized also by uh, these these giant Asian hornets that are also in the news. So uh, this question we'll, like, we'll, we'll let Ken take point on here. It comes from Adams County. Uh, and, and it goes, so my neighbors have cicada killers galore. And knock on wood, we have not seen any in our yard. Will they typically stay in one place unless the population grows? Also, they pour ammonia down the holes of the cicada killer. They want to know, is that an effective measure? So, Ken, what do you think about this? So, so I've gotten um, several questions the last few weeks about people about 
people thinking they have the the murder hornets, the giant Asian hornet, or Asian giant hornet. Um, but they have, in every case that I've had anyway, they've turned out to be cicada killers. Um, and these are a native wasp species that we have. Um, so they're supposed to be here. They've always kind of been around. Uh, I think just this year with kind of that murder hornet stuff going around there, people are noticing them a little bit more. Um, and what they do is they will go around and they will capture cicadas. So they'll fly up into the trees. The females will sting that cicada, paralyze it. She will then uh, grab it, take it down to the ground where she has um, dug a tunnel into the ground. Um, and she'll drag that cicada down there. Um, she'll lay, she'll get two or three cicadas. They'll lay, she'll lay an egg on those. Those eggs will hatch and those cicada larvae or cicada killer larvae will feed on those cicadas. Um, and then they'll emerge again um, the following year. Those, those larvae will emerge the following year. Um, they tend to like um, well-drained soils. Um, are, they're a little bit lighter texture, so a lot of times a little more sandy soils. Um, so if this person is having that, they, they probably have kind of the ideal soil condition um, for those wasps. Um, a lot of times um, we'll also see them along sidewalks, patio edges, flower beds, um, stuff like that, kind of that looser soil areas um, is where we tend to see them quite a bit. Um, if you see them in a lawn, a lot of times that turf isn't quite as thick. It's not a real dense stand. It's a little thinner um, in a lot of cases. Uh, and one of the issues people have with them tunneling in the yard is they can remove quite a bit of, of soil. Um, and it gets kind of piled up in the yard, and that's kind of unsightly. Um, if you get enough of them, it, there's the potential it could smother the grass. Um, but I would argue they're they're kind of their benefit fars out, far outweighs kind of the damage they're doing um, to your yard. Uh, and these are rather large wasps, so they can be kind of intimidating uh, when you see them. The females, though, are not aggressive. They don't protect, they don't defend their, their nests like a lot of our social wasps do. These are solitary. Um, so really the only time you're going to get stung by a female is if you step on one um, or if you grab them and hold on to them. Um, for the most part, you don't really need to worry about them. Just kind of avoid that area if you can that they're nesting in, um, and you should have no problems. Uh, the males, on the other hand, they can be um, a little aggressive. They're territorial, so they may get up in your face um, and try to scare you off. Um, but since they are males, they do not have stingers, so you don't have to worry about them stinging you. Um, and I realize that's easier said than done when you have a large wasp flying in your face, but you should be okay. If it's, if it's getting up in your face, it's going to be a male more than likely, um, and you don't have to worry about them. Um, as far as kind of managing them, um, and, you know, if you can take some steps to kind of reduce the, how how much they like that habitat. So if you kind of get a, a more dense stand of turf, a lot of times if you keep that soil moist, um, it's a lot less desirable to them. It may collapse those tunnels as well, so you may be able to drive them out that way. Um, but if you have kind of that ideal environment and they really like it, they're just going to keep coming back more than likely, unless you take some steps to, to kind of change that area. As far as pouring um, the ammonia down the holes, that's, that's not a good idea. Um, so when we're using pesticides, we need to make sure we follow that label. And I am, I'm pretty sure that ammonia does not is not labeled for control of um, cicada killers or just or wasp in general. That would be an off-label use of an insecticide. It's not even really listed. I'm assuming as an insecticide, so we shouldn't be doing that. Um, if you did want to control these. Um, you, know, you could use um, some kind of an insecticide um, containing a permethrin or a carbaryl um, and apply those to the entrances of the tunnels so that when those wasps come in and out, they'll pick it up um, and that will eventually kill them. Um, but again, I would, this is just me personally, I would, I would not do it. 
I realize I, I like insects a lot more than most people, um, but these don't really pose a risk if it's if you can kind of avoid the area. Um, we're kind of at their peak right now as the cicada populations go up, the cicada killer populations will go up. Um, and now we're kind of probably getting kind of those populations are going to start declining now throughout the rest of the summer into the fall. So we should start seeing fewer of them. And if, if you can tolerate them, I would just leave them be and, and they'll disappear here in another month or so. They really are quite fascinating creatures to watch also and, and, and beautiful. And for the most part, I mean, when the males have come up and gotten in my face, I basically swat them away with the back of my hand and just go about my business. But um, obviously, as Ken said, not everyone is very is as comfortable with large hornets like that. So if you do keep having questions, you know, is this the uh, Asian giant hornet, please, you're always welcome to contact the extension office because if it is here, which all evidence suggests it's obviously not, but we want to make sure that we have eyes out in the state keeping keeping vigilant, making sure that any invasive species, we're, we're, we're monitoring that and trying to keep them uh, out of the state of Illinois. Yes, now that I am, I am very jealous of this person. I, I would like some cicada killers in my yard, but I don't have any. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of folks, they'll they'll go to different extremes for, for controlling them as well. This question mentions ammonia. I've had questions that have included bleach, mothballs. And, you know, when you combine some of these chemicals, folks, down in the ground, um, I have... Uh, heard stories where there's a chemical reaction and you actually uh, either create a chemical fire, a chemical burn, or an explosion occurs. So folks, use those pesticides, read those labels, uh, and and if you don't have to, then don't use them. All right, our next question comes from Scott County. Uh, this one they're talking about I like the, the, I do this little trivia question with our master gardeners, you know, what are the, the only perennial vegetables that we can grow here in Illinois. And um, so the, this question covers those. They want to know about starting strawberries and asparagus in the garden right now. So it's about middle of August. They want to know, can they plant out strawberries and asparagus? They figure they'll grow these for about three years, not need much attention also. So, you know, uh, Katie, what do you think? Are, can we start these two perennial crops right now and are they are they low maintenance yeah so typically we plant strawberries and asparagus in the spring um, with our cooler temperatures here in the midwest there is potential for damage um, with freezing that occurs during the winter so that could be an issue with things overwintering for the next spring um, with planting strawberries, there is some maintenance, both strawberries and asparagus. Typically, we uh, will want to control weeds in the growth. And then um, when we're preparing strawberries for overwintering, a common practice is mulching around the strawberries to protect the crowns of the plants. One thing, if you're anxious to get ready uh, for production or to get those crops producing, for asparagus, you could potentially prepare your soil around this time of year uh, for planting next spring so you can uh, create your trenches in which you'll plant the asparagus. As for production, typically with strawberries, 
um, they'll produce the first year, but you don't actually want to um, eat those strawberries. It's actually suggested that you remove the flowers the first year. That way they can concentrate on below ground root growth and development. And then that way you'll have better production your second year. As with asparagus, you'll let it establish for the first two years. And then uh, during the third year, you can harvest for the first few weeks of the season. And after that third year, you can start harvesting for eight weeks uh, earlier in the season. But for now, I would hold off on planting your strawberries and asparagus until the spring. And I'll add one thing for the asparagus is, is watch out for asparagus beetles. Um, you don't want those getting on there, eating all your ferns, because um, that's going to reduce the amount of energy that, <clears throat> that the asparagus is storing. So you, there may be some, some insect or disease uh, management you're going to have to do. It, they may be a little less maintenance, but they're not going to be completely no maintenance those first couple of years, or, or compared to other fruits and vegetables. All right, our next question is going to be for Chris, um, and this comes from from Pike County, um, where someone has a maple tree that's turned orange and lost its leaves um, early this year, uh, kind of end of June, early July. Um, they would like to know why would this happen. Um, they added there are some honeysuckle bushes below the tree, almost as large as the tree. Um, would competition from that honeysuckle be a potential cause of this? So I, I guess we could start with talking about the honeysuckle um, and also the idea that, that the honeysuckle, and I, I realize honeysuckle, I'm guessing these are invasive bush honeysuckle, uh, which is kind of a grouping of uh, uh, different uh, non-native honeysuckle species. They can get kind of large. Uh, typically, they grow in the understory. They invade uh, woodlands from the edge, and they can move inward because they are, are somewhat shade tolerant. And they also hold their leaves late into the fall, and they're one of the first ones to leaf out in the spring. So if this is indeed the, the invasive bush honeysuckle that you're seeing, um, yes, competition from them is ha, has been documented. And so in timber stands where they would harvest black walnut uh, for veneer wood, they noticed in their plots that were infested with bush honeysuckle, uh, timber harvest was uh, reduced by about 40%. So that, that's a significant amount of competition that's occurring there. Now, the honeysuckle probably were creating some type of competition there for this maple tree, but I am not not 100% uh, thinking that they led to the decline of the tree. So uh, this is probably one of the questions where you know I, I would probably ask for more information. I'd love to see a picture, usually the base of the tree, and you know if the tree had been performing very well for a few years uh and and if the honeysuckle is also about the size of the tree it sounds like a younger tree so you know this could be related to planting uh could be related either to uh you know an error in in, in planting the tree maybe you know typically what we see is the tree gets planted too deep and uh what tends to happen is the a rot might occur at the base of that tree at the soil line because it's too deep in the ground and it's, it's kind of a slow death that the tree will succumb over the course of a few years. Uh, essentially, the, the tree gets starved from uh, any water, uh, nutrients that the root system might be bringing up to the leaves uh, because that tissue that conducts that, the, uh, that flow of nutrients and water is right behind the bark. 
And as the bark rots and that rot progresses into that tissue, the tree essentially girdles or strangles uh, because that tissue get rots and cuts off. And so that tree is operating off of whatever energy the leaves can produce through photosynthesis. And oftentimes what I see is, you know, the, the tree it, in the spring, it will give kind of one last, one last gasp, you know, one last attempt to leaf out, to flower, to fruit, to reproduce. And it puts all the last of its energy in that. And then once all that energy is spent, the tree leaves, essentially they just dry up. Uh, it looks like scorch, essentially. You know, the tree can't get water from the root system anymore. So uh, they, they, the fall color is early, the leaves dry up, and a lot of times they'll just hang on the tree. Um, so so a lot, that, that seems to be a, a, a typical occurrence when a tree is planted too deep. So, you know, that's kind of where I would lean towards. Again, wanting to see some photos of the base of that tree, uh, you know, also to gauge the age of the tree and what other conditions might be occurring around it. All right, our next question comes from uh, Morgan County. And we're going to throw this one at Ken here. Uh, I've been seeing these also at my house. So uh, they're asking, what are all these tiny bees flying all over the place? They are everywhere, and we can't go outside because we are afraid they will sting us. Ken, what are these tiny uh, bees, if they are indeed bees? So if, if they are actually bees, um, you know, we, there are quite a few different types of bees out there. Um, you know, as far as small bees, I would think maybe sweat bees or maybe small carpenter bees, something like that. Although I, I have a feeling they're not bees. They're probably actually um, surfeit flies, hoverflies, flies whatever you want to call them. Um, and so these are a type of flies um, that are mimicking bees. A lot of times they're going to be um, yellow um, and black or maybe orange and black, kind of that black banding uh, on the abdomens that look similar uh, to bees. Uh, and these things, they'll hover around. Um, they may land on you, try to feed on your, your perspiration, your sweat to get the salts from there. Uh, there's a couple different ways you can tell if it's a if it's actually a fly or a bee, so our surfeit flies, um, also called hoverflies, they can actually hover in the air while they're flying, so they'll just kind of stay in place um, while they're flying. It kind of looks like they're floating, um, whereas bees and wasps um, can't hover. They're always kind of moving um, in one direction or another. Um, if the one were to land on you, if you look closely at the wings, um, flies are only going to have one pair of wings, so they have two wings total, uh, whereas bees and wasps are going to have uh, four pairs or four wings or two pairs of wings. So number of wings could be another way you could tell that. You could also look at the antenna. Surfeit flies are going to have those small short antennae while bees and wasps are going to have longer antennae and they're going to be elbowed. Um, and, and kind of the last way and probably not the way you want to decide this is that um, bees and wasps sting and flies don't. So um, if, if they land on you and it's a fly, you don't have to worry about them stinging you. Um, they can be yeah, kind of annoying this year. Populations are, gonna, are kind of going up. Um, they, may, they may swarm you, try to get the sweat. Um, but they are they are beneficial insects. The adults will visit flowers and they will pollinate um, a wide variety of different flowers when they're feeding on that pollen and that nectar. Um, and the, the larvae um, or the maggots, which is what we call fly larvae, um, are kind of this... Um, Legless taper. They have, they're legless. They have a tapered body. They're kind of creamy white, the green or brown in color, um, and they will feed on aphids and stuff. So if you have a large aphid infestation on a plant, um, look around on there, especially if you see a lot of surfeit flies in the area. You may have some of these um, surfeit fly 
larvae or maggots on there feeding on those aphids. Um, and a single um, surface fly larva can eat 20 to 30 aphids a day. So they can do a pretty good job of, of, of kind of getting aphid populations in check for you. So probably one of those good things to have around. All right. We have another question from Knox County, and we have a person who's growing watermelon for the first time. And they they want to know, uh, Katie, when is the when do you know when to pick watermelon? Because it kind of looks the same from when it starts forming to when it should be a tasty watermelon treat. So, Katie, can you give us some guidance here? Yeah. So if you're monitoring your watermelon uh, throughout the growing season, you can kind of tell when the watermelon has reached its peak size, so it's kind of stopped growing. Uh, and that's when you can start to look for things such as checking the tendril or the curl um, that connects the watermelon to the vine. If it's still green, the watermelon is likely not ripe. Once it's brown and dead, uh, there's a good chance that your watermelon is ripe. Another option is by looking at um, is by looking at the ground spot. Uh, so that's the area where the watermelon is in contact with the soil. So typically, when that ground spot is a yellow spot, it is also considered ripe. Um, so typically, we'll see like a yellow or white, um, and once it reaches that yellow color, it is supposed to be ripe. Um, I've also seen people try thumping their watermelons. I don't know that that's necessarily a good measure as it's often um, based off of a person's interpretation of the, of the sound. So I probably wouldn't suggest that. I don't know, have you guys ever been successful with thumping your watermelon to, to, to uh, tell if it's actually right? I have not. I've always done the, the tendril see when that starts to die and and then pick i i sounded a watermelon just the other day and when we cut it open the rind was huge and we basically had just a little teeny tiny ball of uh, uh of good watermelon there in the middle so uh, i would say whatever that watermelon was we got it at the market so uh the thump sounded great but it definitely didn't yield uh, the type of watermelon, or we were kind of surprised at what we found when we cut it open. I'll just say that. Yeah, I think a lot of times the thump me- method can lead to that. Did you pickle the rind? Okay, so we have been <laughs> we have been <laughs> looking into pickling things. That's a lot of work. It wow. is. Do I, There's I, a reason we didn't grow cucumbers this year. We're tired of pickling. <laughs> Okay, well, that's was the road I was going to go down this year. All the cucumbers I've grown have been pickling cucumbers, and we have all of these pickling cucumbers, but the more I read, I'm like, I don't want to do all this. I just want to go buy my pickles. That's just so much easier. Yeah, we, we would usually take a weekend, and we would we would pickle, and then the next weekend would be doing uh, tomatoes, processing those, making sauce and stuff, and we would just kind of switch off weekends. Just let me know when you're doing that again. I'll uh, show up with my cucumbers. All right, I can do that. And unfortunately, squirrels are eating all of our tomatoes, so we're not going to be doing that this year. <laughs> you're like, darn, I'm out, out of all that work. <laughs> okay, folks, we got one more question for you. Uh, and this one also comes from Knox County. We have 
Colorado potato beetle. Now, uh, this is all over this gardener's, it's on their eggplant. They're even finding it eating the tomatoes. Right now they're hand picking. Uh, they are spraying a product known as Pyganic. Uh, they wanna know, are there, there any other options they can consider? They're spending a lot of time just fighting these. Uh, they do prefer to stay organic though. So can can do we have any other options when it comes to Colorado potato beetle? Yep. So we'd have a couple. So so like they mentioned on eggplant, tomatoes. So Colorado potato beetle. Um, they like to feed on plants in the um, solanaceous family. So again, our our eggplants, tomatoes, peppers, um, nightshade. If you have any of that weed, um, ground cherry would be another one. Um, so as far as organic options, um, there are, there would be a couple others they could try. One would be um, active ingredient azadactrin or neem um, would be one possibility. Another one would be um, spinosad, which is made from a, a soil bacteria. Um, so they could try those. Hand picking again is another good one. Um, one of the issues with potato beetles and a lot of other type of insects is the larger they get, the more difficult it is to control them um, with chemicals. Um, so I definitely trying to get them when they're young. I would go out and scout. Um, if you find those, <clears throat> find those eggs, um, and get rid of them, they'll lay those in in clusters. A lot of times on the underside of the leaf, they're kind of a yellowish um, orange color. They look a little similar to um, to ladybug eggs, lady beetle eggs, whatever you want to call them. Um, but if you find those egg masses, um, smash those, get rid of those, kind of reduce that the number they're going to be hatching um, for you there. Um, yeah, going out and scouting and, and hand-picking, and keep an eye on them, and then you could try those either neem or, or spinosad if you want to go more the the organic route. There is a sick satisfaction when it comes to squishing potato beetles. Yes, or squash bugs or any of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Revenge is yours. <laughs> and then they lay hundreds of more eggs. So, All right, well, that was a lot of fantastic information Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another show, the Good Growing Podcast. Uh, thank you, Ken, Katie, for joining us this week. Thank you, Chris. It was fun. Let's do it again next week. We shall, and actually, we have a guest lined up for next week, folks. We have uh, we have Jamini Balsad. She is a horticulture educator in Cook County. Um, so she will be joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking about seed saving. Tis the season, folks. The the summer, believe it or not, is going to start winding down before we know it. And you know what? I've grown some interesting plants this year. I'm kind of curious. Can I save those seeds? All that and your home gardening questions, feel free to send those in. Again, we will we'll keep answering these on the air until our bosses tell us to stop. Also, we will be providing information to uh, our upcoming webinars and also the recordings of those webinars will be posted on YouTube on the Illinois Horticulture YouTube channel. Uh, you can find us there. We'll put those links below in the show notes to the podcast. And of course, listeners, we're going to head out. We're going to get into some beautiful weather here. We're going to enjoy the gardens. We're going to enjoy our yards and landscapes. I hope you can do the same. Thank you for listening, and as always, keep on growing. Our show is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. We'll see you next week.